Hello, welcome to Horror Culture Show, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we're back for another Pride Month episode. We are back again, discussing more gay shit <laughs> with, with more guests. Yes. More guests. Yeah. Yes. T- today's guest is a first time guest on the podcast, but it's not our first time discussing films with him. We have been guests on this podcast to discuss such classics as the Star Wars Holiday Special, Voyage of the Rock Aliens, and Word of World Mine. His podcast is very entertaining and very camp, and it's all about musicals. That's right. Today, we're joined by John from Life's Better Song Podcast. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. It's about bloody time. Yeah, welcome to our podcast. I know. For for fuck's sake, it's been a while. (laughs) And uh, you know we've we've uh, obviously, as I mentioned, discussed some questionable films with yourself. Um, but today we're we're actually talking about one of the greatest films ever made. I think mean, that's really kind of us to uh, you know give that option out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, but like it's also camp. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, it definitely yes. is. Definitely, uh, we are talking today about. The 1948 classic that is Rope, Alfred Hitchcock's first ever colour movie. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So what, what made you pick Rope? So um, you you sent me a list of options. And, you know, I don't think a lot of people know about this movie. So I wanted to, like, share my thoughts on it and bring it to the forefront and make you guys do it. Yeah, when it comes to Hitchcock, I suppose everyone, the first film they think of is Psycho, and then maybe Vertigo, The Birds. Um, This was unavailable for like 30 years after its release. Yes. Uh, But I I honestly think this is one of his best films. Yeah, I agree. It's strange, because obviously we're called horror cult trash over, and Hitchcock is well-renowned for being a incredible director his films are world renowned for many many years but this kind of falls into the cult category yeah because it's not everyone's go-to hitchcock film Mm -hmm. as gary said it was unseen for many years it was one of the hitchcock five that he kind of took out of circulation really for about 30 years and it was after his death that it came out got a re-release Um, It wasn't very popular at the time, didn't do great at the box office, wasn't really as well known as his other films. It feels weird to say that because I've always known it as a Hitchcock film, as a big film, because, you know, I watched it fairly early on and I've been aware of it for a long time. But looking at the history, it's, it's a cool film. Yeah. I also really like it because of the shtick that it has, where um, they made it seem like it was one take. Yes. Yeah. So yes, there are there are a couple actual like cuts in there. Yeah. Like visible cuts, but also the hidden cuts of like they'll zoom in on something and then zoom out to like be able to change film reels or something. And that is also what spoke to me about this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I love that sort of style. Uh, again, as we as we mentioned, this is directed by Alfred Hitchcock, director of Psycho, The Birds, Strangers on the Train, Dial M for Murder, 
North by Northwest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Juno and the Paycock. Yeah, and uh, and he did shoot this in long unbroken takes, lasting up to ten minutes, uh, involving carefully choreographed camera and actor movement. Uh, though most shots in the film wound up being shorter, every other segment ends by panning against or tracking into an object, like a man's jacket blocking the entire screen or mm-hmm. the back of a piece of furniture. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and since the filming text was so long, everybody on the set tried their best to avoid any mistakes. Uh, at one point in the film, the camera dolly ran over a, and broke a cameraman's foot. But to keep Oops. filming, he was gagged and dragged off screen. Uh, another time, a woman puts a glass down but misses the table, and a stagehand had to push up and catch it before it hit the ground. Uh, and those parts are still in the final cut. And it was filmed entirely in a studio as well, apart from the opening credits. So the clouds that you see outside, they're uh, made of fiberglass. The effect of a police siren coming towards the apartment building at the end was uh, he had an ambulance come at full speed from several blocks away, straight to the Warner Brothers studio. Uh, sirens blaring all the way. The sound was picked up by a microphone suspended from the studio gate. So all these little things were put in place to kind of make it look like it was an actual apartment. But no, it was actually a studio, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You can tell as well. Like it's a it's a studio. It's not a real apartment because I mean it's also based off of a play. Yeah. So yeah. you, if you don't know, like I I blacked that out and I like ignored it um, when I first watched it after being assigned this because I was just watching it. I was just like, this seems like a play. And then I rewatched it the last night and I was like, yes, it is a play for fun. <laughs> yeah, it says it right there <laughs> in the credits. Yeah. Um. And that it it just it definitely didn't stand again. Same sort of thing with me. When I first watched it, I didn't know that it didn't really stand out to me. But this time around, it's like okay, yeah, this is definitely. And and I think uh, you know for him to make this work so well on film, it's it's a real achievement because it does look like it is made specifically for a play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it was a conscious choice that the long takes and such, because obviously, as you know fully well, John. Is that on the stage there are no redos? Yeah, right. You and it feel I, in your research. I didn't research this at all, but like in your research, is this cast from the stage version? No, no. The stage versions from the nineteen twenties. Uh, see, I was I, there are parts or there's some people who you're. Um, there's the phrase like playing to the back of the audience. Like yeah. that's what you do in theater because you have to like. There is with the camera, you can get up close and get some react and like you have to um, play it small and things like that. But this man, this movie, everyone was just playing to the to the audience, to the back row of the balcony and everything. Yeah, I think that's very much a classic Hollywood thing. Uh, I feel like most classic Hollywood acting is very much like theater acting. Would you agree? Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, but I like, believe we- but- I was going to say, but James Stewart is the only one that's like, actually, like, I'm I'm a movie star. So yeah. I know what it's like. I felt like everyone else was just, I thought it was a re, the production that turned into a movie, because that has happened. Like, there are people who do the stage version that then do the movie version. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> most, this... most notably is Philip. Yeah, we'll talk about the writers, but before we do, did anyone spot the uh, signature Hitchcock cameo? Yes. No. 
So it's it's very hard to spot in this one. At 55 mm-hmm. minutes into the film, a red neon sign uh, in the far background shows Hitchcock's trademark profile and it starts blinking. So technically he's not there, but they, they had an intimate look like he was there. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's that's cool. Uh, it's written by Hume, Cron- Hume Cronin, who wrote Under Capricorn, The Dollmaker, and Foxfire, and is also the star of Cocoon, Cleopatra, Batteries Not Included, Spartacus, Brewster's Millions, Impulse, Shadow of That, and more. Oh. Also written by Arthur Lawrence, who was the writer of The Way We Were, West Side Story, The Turning Point, Gypsy, Summer Show, Anastasia, and more. And homosexual, I believe. I'm getting to that. I'm oh, getting to that. And an uncredited <laughs> Ben. Credits, you'd have to wow, yeah. Money. And an uncredited Ben Hecht, uh, who wrote Notorious, The Scoundrel, Angels Over Broadway, Scarface, Gone with the Wind, Gilda, Strangers on the Train, His Girl Friday, Shop Around the Corner, Spellbound, Lifeboat, and so many more. So quite a prolific. Yeah. So little no. So we have nobodies involved. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. B movie. Uh, and based on the play by Patrick Hamilton, who did Gaslight, Bitter Harvest, and lots of stuff for ITV and the BBC. Wow. And the story was very loosely based on the real-life murder committed by University of Chicago students uh, Nathan Lippold and Richard Loeb, which was also the fictionalized subject of Compulsion and Swoon. Yeah. 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 The, um, the stage play was a lot. I, I would say racier, yeah. but the implied homosexuality in the film was expressly homosexual in the play, yeah. wasn't it? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Makes sense. In the grand tradition of films, and obviously we all love films, uh, but they have always somewhat lacked in progression, haven't they? Yeah. Particularly compared to the theatre mm-hmm. and to literature. Um, thank you, Hayes Code. That one, <laughs> <laughs> but we do end up getting a camp all time with rope, don't we? Do. we? With we do. these uh, insinuations about their relationship, yeah. Again, more to come on that, yeah, shortly. Uh, made on a budget of 1.5 million dollars, and honestly, honestly, I could not get a specific number for how much it made. Like, the lowest I found was 545 dollars, and the highest was 2.2 million. I'm like, okay. Which one is it? How much did this make? It's, That's a huge gap. Yeah. Yeah. I believe worldwide it's 2.2 million. Mm. Um, obviously, there was a re release in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but at the time, a lot of the criticism was based on the sort of plot not living up to the technical prowess. Yeah. So obviously, this is very forward, like we've discussed technically. Um, it's Hitchcock's first um, technical film. It's it's all that, but a lot of the criticism at the time was like, well, it was kind of wasted yeah. because the rest of the film's a bit pants or it's a bit basic. Um, I don't know. I, think I they was were wrong. <laughs> I'm th- I was thoroughly entertained. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's definitely a film that's got better with age. Yes. I'd say. I mean, <clears throat> they they definitely weren't ready for it. Back in uh, no, no, maybe not. <laughs> Should we talk about who's in the film? Yeah, so the section we like to call "Hey, I know you." <laughs> James Sorry, I spoiled it already. <laughs> <laughs> James Stewart uh, plays Rupert Cadell, a role originally uh, made for Cary Grant. 
Okay. Yeah. Which is funny because I actually I always get Cary Grant and James Stewart mixed up. So yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they watch the Philadelphia it, story then. You'd be <laughs> perplexed. They're the same type of actor. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only film that James Stewart made with uh, Hitchcock that he didn't like. He later admitted that he felt he was miscast as the role and uh, was paid $300,000, a huge portion of the budget. Wow. Yeah. Wait, what was the budget again? 1.5. Yeah, 1.5 million. Yeah, wow. <laughs> He's front and centre on the poster, and I'm he not is. sure if that's justified. He is. I mean, he appears like 25 minutes into the film or yeah. something. You know, yeah. Movie. But he he is... He's the name. Yeah. Because yeah. I, um, I think also the one who played the the maid, I um crap, what is that the character's name? Mrs. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson. Mrs. Wilson. Um it seemed like she was somebody else too, because they I think they or or was it the Janet was somebody else? Because there was uh watching the credits, they were like uh dress worn by this actress designed by adrian and i was like okay so there's no costume designer technically listed but yeah the point that this one actress's dress was made by adrian who was like a big person at the time yeah i think uh janet was played by someone who was in a lot less because i actually had to swap her out and put uh, Mrs. Wilson's actress in here because there actually wasn't a lot to go off for uh, for Joan Chandler. No, she was only in Humoresque, the Joan yeah. Crawford film, by the looks of it. But I think that was very much a thing um, during classic Hollywood is to have the you know gorgeous young um, ingenues be mm. dressed by a fashion designer, yes. and they would get specific credits in you know in the um, Credits. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Well done, yeah. me. <laughs> uh, but... You found it. You know, I just used it. Incredible. <laughs> uh, James Stewart uh, was in Anatomy of a Murder, Vertigo, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, It's a Wonderful Life, Rear Window, The Shop Around the Corner, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and more. Never heard of him. He was. He was in like. This is what like four Hitchcock films that he was in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely a, a very good duo. Even though this is like his least favorite one, he still gives a very good performance. Um, I don't I mean, know. I, I I agree with you. He's he's great in this. Yeah, they it, just it's it's one of those casts where like everyone's flawless. Everyone you know, everyone knows what they're doing. Um, and yeah, it's just fantastic, including John Doll, who is uh, Brandon Shaw, the uh, the dumb top of the film. Clearly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. Or Dom Bottom. You never know. Potentially. He's definitely the dominant one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he is the star of uh, Sporaticus, Gun Crazy, The Court is Green, Atlantis, The Lost Continent, The Man Who Cheated Himself, Another Part of the Forest, Something in the Wind, and more. Did you say Sporaticus? Have you, you seen Clueless? Have you seen Clueless? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just like, I'm, 
I hope he, I don't know if this is the pronunciation <laughs> no, vibe yeah, that we have. Yeah. You know, this I, is aluminum, aluminium. I rarely Sex, refer to it as Versace. Yeah, I, I rarely refer to it as Spartacus, thanks And Farley Granger, uh, it plays Philip Morgan, his uh, his lover. I mean, oh, sorry, his, his friend, his good friend. His good friend. Um, star of Strangers on a the Train, They Live by Night, The Prowler, Murder, She Wrote, Death Mask, The Image Maker, Enchantment, Side Street, and more. He Farley was in Green. Murder, She Sat Down and She Wrote? Oh, I love yeah. it. He was. He was. Uh, the, two, the chemistry between the two is just fantastic. Like, it, there's no I, denying their are so just start ripping your clothes off and like, yeah. fucking each other on, uh, on screen. <laughs> I believe John Doe was a homosexual. Okay, we're getting actor. to that. We're getting to that. I <laughs> have it coming up. I know. <laughs> you know what? Let's just be safe and say everyone in this movie is a homosexual. Yeah. I hope the next one is a homosexual. Edith Evanson is Mrs. Wilson. She would be a great lesbian. Uh, she is a star of Marnie, The Big Heat, Woman of the Year. She, my Woman of the Year, 1948. Citizen Kane, Caged, The Seven Minutes, Twice Told Tales, The Clown and the Kid, Toby Tyler, or Ten Weeks with a Circus, and more. I don't remember any of the films that I've seen her in, but I'm sure she would have been great. Who, I which one? Out Sorry. Kane, so. Edith yeah. Evanson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you don't remember her in Citizen Kane? No. No, I probably Small don't role, remember. I think. Small yeah. role. Uh, and finally, what makes, unless you have any other. Cast members you'd like to include, Chris? Um, not really. I feel like um, Constance Collier was definitely a stage actress. Uh, like John said, you know, playing to the um, yeah. back row. Uh-huh. I think she definitely, as Mrs. Atwell, played to the back row. Yeah. But she was in Intolerance, the D.W. Griffiths film, Stage Door. Um, yeah, f- a few films. But I, I get theatre actress energy from her. Yes, yes, yeah. And even uh, the two guys, Brandon and Philip, I was getting a lot because it's them. It's their movie. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, you guys are definitely, definitely overacting. And I love it. I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I have to mention playing Kenneth was Douglas Dick. (laughs) That's an interesting name. Um, not because he was in anything of note, Just but because that's... of his name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Douglas Dick. Hey, why he, not? He's also very handsome, too. Yes. And possibly a homosexual, because like we said, everyone was a homosexual in this movie. And playing David Kentley was Dick Hogan. Wow. So, so much dick in this a film. couple of dicks for you there. So, uh, for... Just very American. I'm sorry, we have American on the it podcast. Is. I don't know anyone called Dick in the UK, no. but in America, dicks just pop up all the time. <laughs> There's just so many dicks here. So many dicks. <laughs> uh, and for the question we asked for all of our Pride Month uh, episodes, what makes this queer? Now, I do have a bit of uh, trivia here, spoiled by someone a little early. Uh, but John Dole, who played Brandon... Is believed to have been gay. No. Yeah. What a shock. As was screenwriter Arthur Lawrence. Oh. Well, co-star. Him as well. Yeah. 
whilst co-star Farley Granger was bisexual. Oh. And the play on which the film was based explicitly uh, portrays Brandon and Philip as uh, a couple. And it was banned in several American cities because of the uh, implied homosexuality of Philip and Brandon. <sighs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot has changed, clearly, since 1948. No. Oh, unfortunately. Oh. Now I'm sad. <laughs> I do feel like John Dahl and Farley Granger may have had a love affair off screen. Yeah. I like to think that. I've got no evidence to suggest that. Um, but their performances are... Um, word. Authentic. I want. <laughs> fruity, I feel. <laughs> I feel like they're fruity performances. Is that the word you want to use? Yes, it is. Yes, <laughs> I'm allowed. Uh, I feel like there was... Uh, yeah, there's a campness so i think they were definitely in on what was going i think everyone was really i genuinely feel like everyone was yeah. and i i i feel like a lot of the audience weren't maybe no well because doesn't doesn't um mrs wilson even have a line being like they like talking about how they woke up on the wrong side of the bed but like yeah it's like subtle being like they are. They were in the same bed. Uh huh. Mm, yeah. yeah. And shortly after, she's like, "Oh, they were going at it like hammer and tongs." Stop. <laughs> <laughs> the dialogue in this film the, is not subtle about uh, the homosexual we'll overtones. Get into that. Yes, there is definitely a cut on YouTube of <laughs> just the innuendos. <laughs> I. I mean. You could talk about how like Disney villains are queer coded. Like this is like yeah. prime example of queer. Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like... <laughs> Who is the villain? Uh, that's the thing that I'm not mad at them being the villains in this. Like I love it. They're just two gays trying to do what they can to impress their crush, their professor at at college. No, yeah. I don't think <laughs> Philip has the crush on Cadell. Uh, no. I think Brandon does. Yeah, like yes. Brandon is. A, Desperate to impress him. Yeah. And then obviously, so does Mrs. Wilson. She's wet she for does. him. She does. She does. Yes. But Philip, but Philip does say Thank you should you. invite him to join us, the more the merrier at one point. But we'll get into that shortly. Yeah. Uh <laughs> let's without further ado, let's discuss our feature presentation. Scrolling opening credits with a breezy classic Hollywood score by David Butelf. Uh that gives the impression we're about to watch a romantic drama. Yes. Very it's a misleading. Nice sunny day. The soundtrack's romantic. And then Rope. Yeah. And we get a scream. Completely <laughs> a, we have a scream. A completely out of place. Yeah. The, the the title is 
you know, um, they're in big, bold red letters. Yeah. 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 Definitely. And then we get a scream. Yeah, we get a scream. Immediately we're shown the murder by uh, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. And uh, they strangled to death their former classmate from prep school, David Kentley, in uh, Manhattan penthouse apartment. These guys are fucking loaded. And this is the most that uh, David is in the movie. And then everything else. It's so it's. Uh, sorry to like interrupt the flow of everything, but it's just so fascinating that everything revolves around him and he's only in 30 seconds of the movie. Absolutely. Uh, he's in the trailer more than he's in the film because the trailer actually shows him uh, on a park bench speaking with Janet before leaving to meet Brandon and Philip. And uh, James Stewart does the narration and says that's the last the audience would see him alive. Oh. Um, so that's yeah, it's such a great trailer and such a great great way of setting the film up as well. It's like you could if you watch the trailer, you're watching the prequel. <laughs> Interesting, because then even if you look at like the credit the um, the credits of the characters, it's you know um, what's a good example like Philip, his friend, Brandon, yeah. his friend, you know uh, Kenneth, his and uh, David's enemy or whatever, and you're like. Yeah. Everything revolves around him, mm-hmm. but he's, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's like killing Janet Lee in Psycho. Like, yeah. Well, he is the MacGuffin of the film. So yeah. famously, Hitchcock had his MacGuffins, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, which is an object or device in a film or a book which serves merely as a trigger for the plot. So David is the MacGuffin. Even more so, David's corpse yeah. is the MacGuffin of the film, and it's it's the object that drives the whole plot. So we don't need David too much, but his death scene really sort of gets the uh, the film going. Yeah, to a certain degree, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. that moment, and it tells you this is what you're in for. You're sort of led into a romantic. You know, the film's called Rope because you paid your ticket, um, but you sort of lulled into a false sense of security with the opening titles and then rope, death, this is what you're getting for the film. There's yeah. no lead up to that point. No, no. They they commit the crime as an intellectual exercise. They want to prove their superiority by committing the perfect murder. Oh, the gays always got to overdo it, haven't they? I know. Well, so, and, but like, they never specify why they chose him, right? Like, no, I mean, no, not really, no. They do to a certain degree. Um, so after hiding the body in a large antique wooden chest, Brandon and Philip host a dinner party at the apartment, which is a panoramic view of the Manhattan Skyview, like Gary said. Um, Brandon says, the good Americans usually die young on the battlefield, don't they? Well, the Davids of this world merely occupy space, which is why he was the perfect victim for the perfect murder. Of course, he um, he was a Harvard undergraduate. That might make it justifiable homicide. Yeah. So their justification for choosing David is that David is in Brandon's eyes, and I will say Brandon mainly mm-hmm. in Brandon's eyes a nobody. He was occupying space. He wasn't going see, to be great. See, and I read it that he's just jealous of him, but also trying to play matchmaker with Kenneth and Janet. 
Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that was maybe Brandon just being shitty, playing games with people. Mm-hmm. He's a thirsty bitch who loves the drama. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And let me tell you, <laughs> he doesn't hide any of that. Like, that no. is that is all there on the surface. Uh, and this is when we get some great dialogue as well, where uh, Philip says, you frightened me since that very first day in prep school. Maybe it's part of your charm. I'm only kidding, Brandon. I just can't take it as well as you do. So <laughs> I suppose I'll turn on you a little. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just, I wrote down those lines and I was just like, kiss him, kiss him. <laughs> Clearly when he says part of your charm, I suppose, they are like so close that you're just like, just lean in. Someone yeah. just lean in and like tongue wrestle each other i don't know oh, they are ridiculously close throughout this whenever they're to, whenever they're talking they get so close to each other and it's just like you just you know hitchcock's been on that camera with a smoke on his face oh no one's gonna get this no one's gonna get this and then all these years later <laughs> yeah i suppose seemingly i said earlier that uh, a large part of the audience didn't get it seemingly someone did to well, ban I mean, the banned. film yes to ban the film <laughs> I'm assuming in the stage play, they're more physical with each mm. other than they are in the film. Or they yeah. can be, depending on the direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it depends where the play was. I suppose if it was in some back alley somewhere in the 1920s yeah. London, they, they could do whatever they, were, they like, really. They were half naked. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, at, at the in the beginning, after they killed him, um, Philip probably played with Brandon's nipples. <laughs> Who knows? They, uh, <laughs> they open a bottle of champagne and celebrate the art and satisfaction of committing the perfect crime for danger and excitement and do a toast to David. When Philip asks how Brandon felt when he did it, and he said he felt nothing until the body went limp, which is something that's actually um, directly referenced in Scream 6 this year. I'm not going to say where because, you know... Mm. Not going to give well, Scream 6 spoilers in this episode, but, you know. Well, so, and then it's fascinating, too, because technically, Philip is the one that killed Brandon. Yeah. And he is the one who's holding the rope, strangling him. Uh, no, sorry, uh, David. David, sorry. Brandon <laughs> Brandon just held, there's so many names, and they say it, every everyone's names, every five seconds. Like, Brandon is the one just holding David, and Philip is the one that's actually doing the act of murder. So, like, technically, Brandon can claim innocence, I think. Maybe. I mean, yeah, which is, is, is interesting, <laughs> considering he's the one who's the most into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, it, it like, clearly he's the mastermind. He's the one that yeah. brought David to the apartment. He's the one that talked Philip into doing this. He's the one who's had the conversations with Mr. Cadell, like... He is the mastermind, but he can also manipulate it to be like, I wasn't, I had nothing to do with it. He, I left the room or whatever, you know, it's yeah. going to be like, oh, he said, he said at the end of the day. Yeah, no, absolutely. He, he even uses uh, the chest containing the body as a buffet table for the food. <laughs> now, this part of the movie where they, where Mrs. Wilson, like, complains about the table and arrangement and everything. It's just, it's like 1940s white people problems. <laughs> oh, definitely, yes. 
where yeah. I'm just like, why are you? I mean, and this is this is a moment where you're like, oh right, this is based off of a play. Like, <laughs> it's interesting you said that actually because I do think a lot of this film comments on the privilege of rich people, uh, specifically rich white people, and like that's even kind of mentioned a little later on when they're talking about uh, murder and the way it's viewed by the professor, and he's like, oh, for some people it's a crime, and others it's just a privilege. I was like, well, do you know what? Yeah, that's absolutely correct with what's going on here. Well, because the most dangerous game, did that happen before? That happened before this, yes? I feel yeah. like. Yes, yes. Where that's what he's talking about, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we get some other dialogue here where uh, Brandon says to Philip, well, go on, yank it out. If Miss w- Mrs. Wilson was here, she'd yank it out for you. <laughs> and no, I'm not giving context. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give context. Do not <laughs> make make your listeners watch it for context. Yeah. <laughs> the housekeeper, Mrs. Wilson, arrives to help with the party. She's very disappointed that the chest is being used as a buffet table because she loves her dinner table. She absolutely adores that dinner table. Um, shouldn't shut the fuck up about it. No. Brandon walks around swinging the rope he used to kill David with uh, before uh, putting it in the drawer. Well. That is high cam. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and also like this is a play. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for reminding us that this is a play. Because when the I, door swings, like that probably that probably took him forever as well to get just right. The door swing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Love that shot. Great visual. <laughs> uh, he informs Mrs. Wilson that the champagne is on ice and that publisher Rupert Cadell, everyone's favorite hunk, is uh, and their housemaster in prep school is coming to the party who and she has a fan deliberate. Yes. <laughs> so, okay. She worked for him for Mr. Cadell and then now she's working for Brandon. What's it? What's this? this is a, this is where it's a little messy for me. And I was like, you're only an hour and 20 minutes long movie where <laughs> and you you're setting everything up with big ex- exposition but like I don't understand the transition that happened. Like, did she also work at the university or? Yeah. She just loves the gays. I feel like. Well, obviously, yes. (laughs) I feel like a huge part of the film, and I'm assuming it's deliberate, is alluding to stuff that happened at this university or, or at prep school and doesn't quite give us the context. Because if you really read into it, everyone was having a go on everyone. Yeah. You know, even Brandon had some form of relationship with Janet. So it kind of feels like one of... And you get a lot of sort of films and and stories like this that high society people just sharing each other. (laughs) I don't know how best to word it. Right, like they're they're in their own little cluster. Yeah. And like they're the most important people in the world. Yeah, because thinking of sort of... London, because the play was London 1920s, that whole bright young thing, Mm. um, the Oscar Wilde sort of energy about things and rich people who never really had to work a day in their life, just sort of um, living for the thrills. And this film's really about those thrills going too far. Yeah. Like, Like when you look at the apartment, you're just like, what do you do for a living? And how old are you? That's what I wanted. How old are they supposed to be? Like they're in like their early twenties, right? 
Uh, for 1940s, probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for 1940s, they're probably teenagers. I think the characters are. I don't. I don't think. <laughs> the actors are. That's, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's classic young people. No, yeah, yeah, clearly everyone is 45 and up in this movie. Yeah. But, like, yeah. the characters, I I yes. want to say that they're, like, not even 30. No. Well, the Leopold and Loeb, they were teenagers. Yeah. So, 17, 19. Mm-hmm. And their uh, murder victim was only 14. So the crime that this the play in the film is based on, they were very young, very young. Wow. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> um, Mrs. Wilson, she she has a thing for uh, for Rupert, and she says she would have doled up if she knew it was that kind of party. And Philip is horrified to learn Rupert's coming along. Their whole idea for the murder was inspired years earlier by conversations with Rupert. Uh, whilst they were at school, Rupert had discussed with them in an apparently approving way the intellectual concepts of uh, of now. Would you like to pronounce this Superman? <laughs> oh, Nietzsche's. Thank you, thank you, Superman. <laughs> As a means of showing one's superiority over others, Brandon thinks Rupert would approve of the murder as a work of art. Uh, he says to Philip, "I once uh, thought of asking him to join us." And Philip says, well, why didn't you? The more the merrier. And it's also stated that Brandon would sit up all hours at the master's feet. And that he would. That he would. So I think what we're getting here is Brandon is trying to impress Rupert. And ultimately, it's him trying to impress Rupert that's the undoing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, Brandon is the dominant one and Philip is the one who is struggling with it. And he turns to drink and he's, um, probably the one that's going to confess or slip up. Brandon thinks that Philip is the one that's going to slip up. But ultimately it is Brandon because he invites Rupert and... It's his hubris that is the downfall. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Is that the right word? Do I want to use hubris? I want to use hubris. You you use whatever word you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the I'm moral sure of... someone in the comments might tell us. <laughs> the moral of the story is there's a lot of things the gays would do for Dick, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, like, obviously... Uh, not gay related like uh brandon sees uh mr cadell as a as a mentor of sorts so he's just trying to please the mentor um rather than you know wanting his dick i think but in if we look at subtext could we see uh and spoiler alert rupert is the one that solves the crime uh, by the end of the evening, could we see this as Rupert um, kind of sort of um, declaring his heterosexuality in or terms breaking of with, or breaking up? Yeah, with kind of. So Brandon's always had these ideas, and he's trying to impress Rupert, and he takes it too far, and Rupert ultimately sort of says. No, you're yeah. you're wrong. I don't agree. But like with Rupert what you've does, done. 
Rupert does keep Brandon at like an arm's length throughout the whole movie where he's like, I know your bullshit. I remember your days in the prep school where you would do this crazy shit. And I know we're jumping around and I'm so sorry that to break your format, but it's like it, this movie is just so fascinating because like of all the subtext and the text and the combination of the two. But like, yeah, I, I think I think also Mr. Cadell, uh, uh, James Stewart is just like, just not impressed really by him because like that, and that's what I think Brandon really wants is just to impress him. Yeah, yeah, and that James Stewart is absolutely Shania Twain in this. So uh, what? You committed murder for me. <laughs> that don't impress me much. And that's all I'm going to give you because I don't want you guys to get fucked with royalties. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth, uh, what, if I sang a song? Which you have done before. Yeah, obviously. We haven't been sued yet. But obviously not as, as nicely as John just did. Oh, thank so, you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so maybe that's why we've never been caught. <laughs> If it's so off-key, they'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Kenneth Lawrence is the first of the party guests to arrive. Uh, He's David's... uh, (laughs) My notes, I've got it. He's David's fiancé, but then I've read the rest of it. It's David's fiancé, Janet Walker's former lover, and a previous close friend of David's. You know all four of those boys fucked each other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or they at least had, gave each other a, a hand. They, they <laughs> had an orgy at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Brandon and Philip tell him uh, that they're visiting Brandon's parents. And Philip's going to be locked away. Because <laughs> oh. he needs to practice piano for his debut performance that Brandon got for him. Like, visiting your parents and you're locking them away? That's not for piano. <laughs> Uh, he's horrified to learn that David's parents and Janet are attending, and he's worried that David might attend. Uh, Kenneth is. Uh, Kenneth is so so camp. He I mean. is. Yeah, and it's definitely that case of um, the whole stereotype that gays go for people who look like them. I mean, <laughs> people think that Kenneth and David are the same. There's one scene where they're mistaken for the same person. Yes. You know. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's Philip. No, no, no. That's Kenneth. Oh, is it? Yeah, Kenneth. That's, oh, it, I thought yeah. it was Philip. Nah. Yeah, it, uh, Mrs. Atwater thinks she sees David, but it's yeah. Kenneth, and that's when Philip breaks the, gla- the glass. Yeah, yeah. And then magically is healed over the course of the night. <laughs> <laughs> Janet, absolute queen that is Janet, is the next to arrive. Uh, she compliments Brandon on how nice he smells, and he tells her it's the swirl that she gave him last Christmas. So she's even giving him perfume. Like, come on. So Janet the beard. Um, yeah. She's a <laughs> she's a nineteen forties version of Carrie Bradshaw, isn't she? <laughs> she writes a column for Allure magazine. Yeah, she does. On uh, the body beautiful, um, which I I think she I think all of the characters are kind of uppity. Mm-hmm. They are sort yeah. of they're high class, and she thinks that it's below her. The way she kind of dismissed, oh, well, I, I write a, a column on the mm-hmm. Body Beautiful for a lower magazine. But obviously, I think she thinks she should be writing much better content. Yeah, for, another uh, queen of goals. Yeah, of course. She is, um, yeah, she's 
a tried and tested beard and yeah yeah that term that i'm not sure if i'm allowed you to know say. you know she uh she absolutely hangs out at gay bars she doesn't even take anyone with her yes. she just goes to gay bars she waits to make friends and she leaves there with like five different friends she has a nice little kiki in the smoking area with them uh-huh you know? uh, and she's, she's she's like she's like i'm sorry that he didn't text you back yeah like, yeah Sorry. Well, you know what? We're using modern lingo for this. I'm sorry he didn't text you back. Maybe next time. <laughs> and also, but also, I feel like she's that uh, that type that also like like Grace from Will and Grace in a way, where like all the gays flock to her, but like she has a crush on some of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, she, but like every. But like when she has a crush on a guy and he turns out gay, she's just like every time. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely her. It's definitely her. She's our kind of girl. <laughs> she was so, it, she's uh, a, a phrase that rhymes with tag mag. There we go. <laughs> we all know it. We're all thinking it. She's. Uh, I just don't know if I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> she's. She, she's fuming at Brandon's sense of humor by inviting Kenneth and uh, gives him a telling off where he tells her he's lost count of her lovers. Girl, you go out there and you fucking get as much dick as you want. Don't don't let Brandon shame you. He's just as bad. Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah, definitely. My After that, shoes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. We never see her shoes. No, do we? no. You're right. You're right. There's no credit in the in the film for shoes provided by Manolo Blahnik. <laughs> uh, after that conversation, we hear a random bit of dialogue in the background where Kenneth says. Gave me a D in conduct. <laughs> but then Janice, uh, Janet says, uh, how many years has it been since I said, oh, it tickles? <laughs> well, apparently to Brandon, not that long. Um, <laughs> and uh, she also says, Brandon at someone's feet. Who is this, Rupert? Uh, yeah, and that's when we get the, he thinks murder, oh, yeah, course, a, yeah. he says, he thinks murder is a crime for most men, but a privilege for a few. Yes, which is the gist, essentially the gist of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The next guests to arrive are David's father, Mr. Kentley, and his aunt, the wannabe fortune teller, Mrs. Atwater. His mother is unable to attend because of a cold. And this is where she walks through. She's like, oh, David! <laughs> when it's Kenneth. When it's Kenneth. I thought it was Philip, no, but then Philip, Philip loses his cool and smashes the glass in yeah. his hand. Yeah, because he's not so subtly... <laughs> just uh, like an anxious puppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's not very subtle at all, but interestingly, no one really notices apart from Rupert. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is, uh, uh, you know, just kind of, oh, that's just... Where's David? Where's David? <laughs> yeah, that queen over there, he's just having another time. <laughs> just loves the drama. Leave him to it. Bye. Um, Mrs. Uh, Atwater, she also informs Janet that she's uh, finished her horoscope before she came there, and it indicates that marriage to a man that matches David's description is on the horizon. Well, it's definitely not David. Kenneth. Kenneth, hey, yeah, there we go. Come on, Long Island <laughs> medium. She gets it. She gets it right. She's also visiting, by the way. We should make, make note of that. Like, yes. she's not... She acts like them but she's not part of like the new york scene so she's a tourist 
Yes, she is. She is. And she loves some champagne as well. Oh, he's a she? Taurus. <laughs> <laughs> she could be a Taurus. She could be. Uh, Philip offers her some champagne. She says, oh, I'd love some. Daddy used to have a glass every morning at 11. I'm like, okay, there's uh, a bit of exposition about her alcoholic father. <laughs> God. Uh, she reads Philip's palms and tells him that his hands will bring him great fame. She refers to his skill at the piano, but he appears to think that she refers to uh, the notoriety of being a strangler. So to solve this and to dis- distract her, he plays piano... Well, she sits there leaning on the piano, checking her makeup in the mirror. <laughs> it is high camp, and love it. I, I, yes. I love her. She's that sort of kooky older woman. I'm thinking, um, what's that Noel Coward play? Oh, forgive me. Um, Angela Lansbury. Only for it. It'll come back to me. Mame? Uh, no, not Mame. Um, but that sort of aunt, that aunt Mame, that kooky aunt, um, like travels with my aunt, very much in keeping with that sort of yeah. And because I'm still thinking of it as a 1920s stage play, mm. so that kind of character. Um, yeah, the it'll cool land. It'll come back yeah. to me. It'll come back to me. Uh, Rupert arrives <laughs> as Philip's playing piano, and he says, "Oh, your touch has improved, Philip." Blythe spirit. Life spirit has that kooky, medium, older woman, very sort of British sensibility to her. So, yeah, Rupert informs Philip that his touch has improved. And uh, Brandon (laughs) appears calm and in control, although when he first speaks to Rupert, he's nervously excited and stammering. Mm. Philip, on the other hand, is visibly upset and morose. He does not conceal it well and starts to drink far too much. He's, He's a messy bitch. And you know, if he was on Real Housewives, he'd be starting all the drama. Yeah. He's the one. He's the one that gets drunk and spills all the secrets. Like, yeah, slept with my husband for twenty <laughs> years. <laughs> Definitely Ramona. Yeah, that's him. He even throws glasses. Yeah, just like Ramona does. Yeah. Brandon uh, introduces Rupert to everyone. Rupert informs Janet uh, that he's heard a lot about her from David. And she's like, oh, uh, I hope he's done me justice. And he's like, do you think you deserve to be done justice? I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And then he takes him over to Kenneth next. He's like, oh, my little Kenneth, how you've grown. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Why are you giving him away West voice? I don't know. He deserves it. Much of the conversation has starts to lean towards David and his str- and his strange absence, which worries the guests. Yes. Yeah. And again, this movie is centered around a character that's only yeah. visible for a minute less than that. But there's a lot of sort of visual gags around this where they're talking about David. Where's David? Um People say, oh, I'm sure he'll turn up soon. And the um, camera pans out and we get the chest. Yeah. And we go to the chest when we're like... talking about David. When uh-huh. We know this is the MacGuffin. He's yeah. right here, guys. Uh, <laughs> really somebody open the chest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the tension, you know, and that's why Alfred Hitchcock is the master of suspense. Yeah. Because he's so good at these things. And he, there's even sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of 
doing it that he does do that builds the tension. You know, obviously, famously, he said, you know, tension is built. You know, if you have a scene where two people are having dinner and a bomb explodes, that's not tension. But if we know that the bomb is there underneath their seat, mm-hmm. then the tension is built. Yeah. And that's why. So we have to have these visuals reminding us that David is there. particular, And when it's when he's being spoken of and the, the dialogue is insinuating that he'll be there sooner than we think. Well, he is. Yeah. He is there. It's just his corpse underneath the food that you've been eating for a long time. <laughs> Which is interesting, uh, in because also the scene Rupert tells Janet how the mistletoe bell was Brandon's favourite story. And Mr Atwater points out it's about a girl who locked herself in a chest and her skeleton was found 50 years later. Yes. So, so the telltale heart, got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is another way, you know, it's very unsubtle yeah. of Brandon. And he's so pleased with what he's done. And he's so happy that it is his undoing mm-hmm. because it's shit like this which rouses Rupert's suspicion. Yeah. Because he does know Mistletoe Bow, it was one of his favorite stories. He knows what the story's about. The others around him, sort of, you know, like Janet, just kind of like, oh, brush it off. And they're like, oh, cute story. You know, whereas for Rupert, it means a lot more. And that is ultimately their undoing in this whole situation. What I also found funny at this point was when Mrs. Wilson tells Janet to watch what she eats. And she, calories. <laughs> <laughs> also, with Mrs. Wilson, like, b- uh, before setting up and everything, she keeps using, like, we and us and our party and all this. And I'm just like, what, what, are, you, what are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that is very interesting how she's... Uh really associates with herself with them, even though, like, she's just the housekeeper. Well, she does all the hard work. That's true, that's true. I, she, I, I think she's also the one that's like, ally! I'm an ally, everyone! Yeah. Ally! <laughs> if we're doing, like, the whole queer coding thing, you know, where Janet is the is the tag smag figured yeah. out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and Mrs. Atwater is just the camp queen, like, Mrs. Wilson is the one that's just like, I'm going to the Pride March and show my allyship for support. (laughs) She's the um, hen party at the gay bar. Yeah. This is my special day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but she's also the one being like, tip the drag queens. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Atwater and Janet have discussion about how fit Cary Grant is. (laughs) <laughs> they do, yeah. He is fit, I will say. It's true. It's true. I agree with them. He's, I mean, uh, they don't make him like him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was just something about James Stewart that you're like, I understand why you're the leading actor in this. And like, you just so, are so yeah. effervescent. Like, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't care if your business and uh, your loan company and it's a wonderful life goes under you're gonna figure it out you'll be fine baby (laughs) (laughs) but it's also kind of funny that they do discuss Cary Grant yeah because because he was going to play that uh, that's a good in joke now that I realize now that you told that I didn't realize that before 
and then obviously they start together in the Philadelphia story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a funny in joke. Um, do you know who is also picky about what they eat? Philip. Philip. Yeah, Janet asks what type of chicken uh, that he wants, and he reveals he doesn't eat chicken. And she says, "How queer! I'd never heard of anyone who didn't eat chicken before. Did you, Brandon? Oh, you probably did. So, <laughs> I mean, first of all, how queer? How queer? <laughs> uh huh. Yes." Yes. And second, Brandon uses this opportunity to tell an embarrassing story about Philip and why he doesn't eat chicken. Uh, because he used to strangle them. And on one particular morning, his touch was perhaps a, a trifle too delicate because one of the subjects for our dinner for their dinner table started to rebel. Uh, Philip is not happy about this. He kicks off and tells everyone Brandon was lying. He's never choked the chicken. <laughs> So, are we under the impression that chicken chokers is <laughs> a euphemism for homosexuals? Uh, and yeah. to choke the chicken is to have gay sex. <laughs> yeah. I think I think this is a layered thing. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, I think they are actually talking about preparing chicken. Yeah. I I think that's what they're talking but like they're also just being like you know you give you give handies in the back room of every yeah. gate bar. <laughs> so Brandon and Philip obviously argue over this and it's suggested that they may end up strangling each other. To which Rupert says, personally I think a chicken is as good a reason for murder as a blonde, a mattress full of dollar bills or any of the customary unimaginative reasons. Um, Janet says, well, now you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. And Rupert says, you may, and I do. Think of the problems it could solve. Unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theatre tickets. So Rupert isn't necessarily sort of blame-free in all of this. No. Because he does spout all of this. He does. He does. And if Mm. his tongue is firmly in his cheek... He's not expressing that greatly, I don't think, because it it upsets Mr. Kentley as well, the way he speaks. And he kind of says, oh, well, you know, I believe this, I believe that, and clearly has been saying it for a very long time, for Brandon to believe it as Mm -hmm. much as he does. And then at the end of the film, spoiler alert, he backtracks on everything. Yeah. He backtracks. Oh, well, well, I, I know I said that, but I didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think that the, the whole sort of Rupert being, uh, maybe leading Brandon on a bit and sort of saying, oh, well, I, I, I believe homosexuality is okay, but I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mm-hmm. go that far. You've gone too far. You know, um, I don't think it's morally right. But he's probably dabbled in a little bit himself. Mm-hmm. And this this is what I'm getting, this innuendo, this, uh, you know, um, sort of allusion to the homosexual way of life. Uh, not particularly flattering because they're talking about murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do, <laughs> and this is what I get. And I think Rupert has led Brandon on throughout the years to a certain degree. See, I didn't go that deep with the reading of it. <laughs> I I was just like, oh, he's finally... I took it as... 
like you know what what's kind of happening here in America where it's like oh you're gonna put all these laws and things into place and then you're gonna get fucked over one day and be like well now we need laws and things for you know like I don't know women to have abortions or something like that and so it'll be like uh it, it it's one thing to have the theory of it, but then when you realize it's in practice, you're like, oh shit, like I I need to now readjust my thought process and everything. Um, yeah. So. It's a bit like The Purge. Yeah. So the, the idea of the, you know, it, The Purge, a lawless society for one evening will get rid of what is deemed as oh. the problems in society. Oh, please. The Purge is definitely inspired by this and the most dangerous game. Like, yes, let's, let's be real here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Janet and Kenneth uh, are kind of set up to uh, have a conversation together by uh, Brandon. And they talk about how he was the one who dumped her. And uh, she asks him what's wrong. He goes quiet. She asks him what's wrong. He's like, nothing. I'm just thinking. She's about, like, about what? Like, Female vanity. <laughs> uh, she also says following this uh, talking about David and, and her love life and everything she says I just couldn't be the gay girl <laughs> but you are the gay girl you're the, the one that all the gays love <laughs> it'll never not I'm sorry it'll never not be funny there are certain terms that obviously these words have changed over time but it would still it will always be funny you know the Flintstones having a gay old time. I, I love it. The Americans referring to bum bags as fanny packs. It's hilarious. I know that words have different meanings at different times, at different places, but it will always be hilarious to hear somebody refer to someone as a fanny pack. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> Uh, they they realise that Brandon had a conversation with Kenneth when he first arrived that indicates he knew Janet and Kenneth had broken up and that she's with David even though no one told him. And he also indicated that Janet wouldn't be with David for much longer. So she confronts him about it. She's absolutely fuming. And Mrs Wilson tells Rupert that Brandon and Philip were acting suspicious all day and tells him about their weird obsession with setting up the buffet on the chest instead of the table. And she uses the exact dialogue. When I came back, he and Mr. Philip were going at it at like hammer and tongs. And this is the moment where Philip finally gets a backbone and stops, you know, shaking. And is yeah. just like, shut up, Mrs. Wilson. Poor Mrs. Wilson. She gets the burn and she has to clear everything. She has to move yeah. everything. <laughs> she was going to have the day off the next day, but she has to go yeah. in to move the books. And a corpse now as well. Yeah. <laughs> Hammer and tong. Is there, are there new positions? <laughs> who's the hammer and who's the tongs? Both and neither at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> a suspicious Rupert quizzes a fidgety Philip about David's whereabouts. Fidgety Philip. What the party is all about. <laughs> and some of the inconsistencies raised in conversation. For example... Despite Philip kicking off about not strangling chickens, Rupert has seen him strangle several and says, you're uh, quite a good chicken strangler, as I recall. <laughs> so now if we're using chicken strangling as as what we 
call it now, like, or like the urban dictionary version of it, which yeah. is masturbation. Is it basic? It, did, did Jimmy Stewart basically admit that he watched the kids masturbate when they were in prep school? Yeah, technically. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Choke the chicken. He's watched him do it several <gasps> times. I didn't get that. Because, yeah. like, cause like, also, th we should mention that, like, he basically groomed Brandon, in a way, with this ideology of murder and only the, the wealthy and intellectual... Um, should rule the world and everything. Yeah. Which which doesn't paint us homosexuals in a best light. I'm going to just say. No. <laughs> no. We're ready, we're fighting over RuPaul's drag race at the moment. But like <laughs> rope, like really if you read if you are really like looking into it, it's basically talking about the villainous gays and how they're grooming children. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, technically, yeah. yeah. But you know, I mean, I'm all for uh, for gay villains, yeah. But maybe not when it goes that far. <laughs> but if we look at it that way, then Rupert's the gay hero. Is he he's the hero of the film? But he's also the groomer. But he's also the groomer. <laughs> so who's the hero? This is that one. No one. I don't think anyone really is a hero. No. They're all they're all deplorable. Because uh well, so you have Brandon and Philip who actually committed the crime. Rupert's the one that planted the seeds of the idea, and then the rest of them are just like, Where's David? Anyway, I'm be I'm vapid and I'm now gonna talk about anything else. But where's David? And they're yeah, they're they're just so into their own world, except noticing David's not there. So no one really is. I don't think anyone really is the hero in this movie. I'm going to hate myself saying this, but I can't think of another way of doing it. It's almost everyone else is an, an NPC within yes. the film. Because they're, them being in the film, yes, it's entertaining, but they don't actually drive the plot in no. any way whatsoever. They they're kind just... of do. Because, like, Mrs. Wilson informs... Rupert about the the moving of the table and uh, all the things that are happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, when they go off to talk to David's mom on the phone and come back and be like, well, he's not there. Like, like they, they give you the little hints and like mm. move things along, but also build tension for us, the audience. So if this was a game, then you would talk to them and they'd give you a little tidbit. You you would be Rupert. Yeah. And you yeah. a little bauble would come above their head yeah, and, and say, and, and, I hate know, moving this table. <laughs> and you know, everyone they're they're like the NPCs that every once in a while are like, I don't need this item. You want it? Question yeah. mark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as the evening goes on, David's father father. David's and... father. <laughs> David's father Rigor Mortis and Janet, they uh, begin to worry because uh, he's neither arrived nor phoned. And we and as they're discussing this, we see Mrs. Wilson clearing everything from the top of the chest, and uh, she attempts to put the books in the chest, but Brandon stops her. This is Alfred Hitchcock at his bed. This yeah. is what he does: that tension building, 
you know, we hear the conversation, but we don't see the conversation mm -hmm. because the camera is focused on Mrs. Wilson yeah. about to find that dead body in the chest. Yeah. And it's it's in incredible. I just I just think this is what he is a master at. This is what filmmakers have copied from Hitchcock for decades, you know, best part of a century after his work. And it's not just Rope, it's all of his films. Yeah. And this is what I came for. This is Hitchcock. And I love it. And I love the scene. Um, and I love how Brandon very sort of mildly stops her mm -hmm. you know he doesn't go no because in so many films you get you know the secrets about to be found out and you know you get the character hiding the secret screaming it and then people are like oh what's his problem why is that but he very actually calmly does it mm -hmm. you know and it says a lot about brandon's character as well the fact that he does very calmly stop her from opening that chest i love it yeah uh, I would also be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to this. Um, not only is this like supposed to look like one take, but I love the um, the way that sound plays. So like you, we focus in on a conversation, but we clearly hear another conversation happening in the background. Um, and also like when Mrs. Wilson talks to Rupert about the table and complains and everything, I think she was directed to like at a certain point start whispering and then get louder yeah because like the camera moves away and it's as if like they are actually whispering and you uh you're at at the party listening to them and like that is just so genius yeah yeah no yeah. it's uh it's expertly crafted and what's really interesting as well is watching this with the subtitles so we could get the dialogue down the subtitles would appear next to the character who was speaking, mm. uh, which like I've never that. noticed before yeah. in any film. Like I feel yeah. like it's specifically done for this one, which... Oh, uh, that didn't happen for me. Stupid America. <laughs> <laughs> also, they, whenever they said pate, um, it, it would... Because I think pate has an accent on the E. Um, when you spell it out, like they would spell it out like P-A-T... I Z E question mark. And you're like, Pate, just P A T. That's all you need. Uh, do you not have Pate in America? We do. There's it's in it's in fucking Heathers. Great Pate, Mom. I got a jet. Oh, that was a restaurant. <laughs> I was like, Heather's the restaurant. I've never heard of it. No, no, the move Heather's the movie. Like Wendy's. <laughs> Pat, like pate is a thing here, and it I think mm. it's supposed to just show how like it's like caviar, where it just shows your wealth, and that's okay. another thing because she had to go to like different stores. Um, yeah, granted, she was trying to find like the perfect pate at the right price point, but also, but I think pate like shit, like the champagne in this and everything is supposed to just show how unbelievably rich these people are and i have no idea how <laughs> yeah and also about brandon as well people are surprised at the champagne mm -hmm. why he why is he being so lavish with this party it's insinuated that he's not always so lavish when it comes to right you know it's is it someone's birthday what are we celebrating it, why yeah. am i having to get the nice pate why am i having to get you know why are we having champagne 
it, it's it's to obviously to him he knows why he's doing it, but everyone else is just like, this is just a dinner party. We're just talking about books. Yeah. Like, what are you? Why are we? Why are we? Spare no expenses with this. Yeah. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you do you think he knew that there was a slight chance that they could get caught at the end of this? Yeah, I feel like that's. Yeah, I I feel like that's part of the excitement for him. Um, is that danger of knowing there is a chance they could get caught at any point? And I think that's why he put so little effort into stopping Mrs. Wilson going into the chest. I think he knew that Rupert would catch on, but I think he wanted Rupert to catch on. Yeah. And he was ultimately surprised at Rupert's reaction. Because mm-hmm. he thought Rupert would catch on and be like, kudos, great job, gold star. Yeah. 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 Let's well, do Miss... the hammer and tongs together. <laughs> yeah, you got a spare 10 minutes. Let's go. Mrs. Uh, Kentley calls. She's really concerned because she hasn't heard from David. And Mr. Kentley decides to leave. He takes with him some books that Brandon has given him, tied together with the rope that they used to strangle his son. Ooh. Like, uh, that's, that is too much. Too much. Yeah. <laughs> too far. When he leaves, uh, Mrs. Wilson accidentally hands, uh, when Rupert leaves, Mrs. Wilson accidentally hands him David's uh, hat, further arousing his suspicion. So Philip complains to Brandon about having a rotten evening. The party's over. She's had enough. Uh, Not because of David's murder, because of Rupert's questioning. Rupert then uh, makes a surprise appearance and comes back to the apartment and tells them that he's there because he left his cigarette case behind. And when you look outside the window, it's now the sun is setting yeah. and night. And I yeah. love how they do this. It's such a subtle way mm-hmm. of showing the passing of time, especially with the, you know, very small amount of cuts yeah. in the film. I love how they do this. Because you just kind of, and this is where, you know, you see the neon sign when it obviously getting mm. darker. Um, and I just, I like the, the subtle way, because then you suddenly realise, oh, a lot of time has passed now. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of the film, because it feels like only an hour and a bit has gone. Um, but in reality, in terms of the film, um, a lot of time has passed. Yeah. And that's I- indicated... I feel like this movie is just like, like the world of the movie is at like 1.5 speed. Mm. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Because, because like, um, you know, they, they set, they set the stuff on the chest. Everyone comes over. They magically eat really fast. They have conversations. Then they grab the books and leave. And you're like, okay, I get that this movie is an hour and 20 something minutes, less than an hour and a half, but Mm. like, Obviously, if you think about it, like we are, you know, definitely more time has passed. Yeah. yeah, because if David was just an hour late, people wouldn't have been so concerned, I don't feel. Despite him having a reputation for always being on time, an hour, you would probably sort of like, oh, OK, you know. Plus, it's New York. Like, there's yeah. so much traffic. Yeah. <laughs> And everyone uses cabs because they're so stinking rich. Yeah. 
Philip uh, panics when Rupert arrives back at the apartment and Brandon gives him a bit of a camp slap, doesn't he? It's very uh, soap opera. Snap yeah. out of it! <laughs> <laughs> Rupert asks for a drink and then starts to theorise about David's disappearance. He's encouraged by Brandon, who hopes Rupert will understand and applaud him. So, the drink that Rupert has... Yeah. Uh, Brandon asks him uh, a short one and he says no I prefer a long one <laughs> we're also what's interesting too is that um, I think it was Brandon is the one that puts the books back on the chest and so when Rupert comes back to quote find his cigarette case end quote I'm surprised he didn't call him out on his bullshit be like it wasn't here before you clearly came back what are you doing yeah yeah um, I think he's just playing this out a lot longer, though. Um, I think, but I think they all are at this point because, like I said, you know, Rupert, he knows what's going on. He's dragging it out a bit, trying to drama. Brandon's like hoping he drags it out longer so that he can uh, congratulate him for this. Meanwhile, a drunk Philip, unable to bear it anymore, throws a glass and accuses Rupert of playing cat and mouse games with him and Brandon, which he is. Yeah, because yeah. he knows. Mm-hmm. Brandon and Philip, they know that he knows. Yeah. I think Brandon enjoys the cat and mouse games, Mm -hmm. whereas Philip obviously doesn't. Yeah. It also makes me wonder what what Philip was like before the events of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you're like, you're so skittish. And like, I mean, from the split second we see, or not split second, but you know what I mean, of like the beginning where he is strangling David, he doesn't, he looks like he's into it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. is it that he just automatically regrets it afterwards and is like, oh, fuck. What? Like, I mean, not regrets, but like realizes the, what he did and the wrongness of it. Yeah. I think Philip sees himself as almost uh, another victim in the film and he Mm -hmm. thinks that Brandon has made him do all of this yeah and I I genuinely I I believe that and he thinks that um, he's a good guy who's done a bad thing I think so and you know you never know how far you can go until you go Mm-hmm. But once yeah. you pass that line, you can't take it back. There's a point of no return. Yeah. Yeah. Rupert seizes uh, Brandon's gun from Philip and insists on examining the chest over Brandon's objections. He lifts the lid and he finds the body inside. Uh, and instead of turning around like, do you know what? Fair play, fellas. You did it. Well done. He's actually horrified and ashamed realising that Brandon and Philip use his own rhetoric to rationalise murder. Uh, and he just gives Metallon off. Uh, he says, there must have been something deep inside you from the very start <laughs> that let you do this thing. <laughs> yeah, there was. And it's, it and it's homophobic. Like, <laughs> and, and it's like, it took him to, to see the act in order to realise how wrong he was when earlier David's father is just like calling him out on his bullshit being like, are you sure you're into murder? Like, (laughs) yeah. Cause he gives a rundown as well. Doesn't Mm -hmm. he before this point, Rupert sort of gives his version of how he would kill David. Yeah. 
if it was him. And the camera follows the story. Obviously, no That's one's there. That's a great scene. Yeah. The I... camera following that story, but with obviously without the actual characters. Mm-hmm. I, I also love it because you can see the hard work that everyone put into it because they do move furniture around and everything. Mm. So you're like, it's choreography. Yeah. Like, and it is so well done and God damn it. Hitchcock. I always always forget how amazing Hitchcock movies are. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're entertaining. We did a, an episode on psycho, didn't we? Obviously psycho fantastic you know a perfect film in my opinion but really looking at it and knowing the story of how it was made and kind of dissecting it the way that we've obviously done today with rope you're like wow this is a work of genius this Mm -hmm. really is and it's that old tried and tested formula it's what you don't see obviously we've seen the end of everything of him being strangled Mm -hmm. But to have Rupert go through the lead-up, and it, it may or may not be true, but this is what Rupert has sort of deducted from what he believes and what he's found, um, to see that play through, and we've, we're imagining in our own heads how it goes, it gives more life to David as a character, I feel, Yeah, as well. Um, because you don't see it, you just hear yeah. the narrative. You just hear the narration and you see the furniture that he mentions where he's like, I'll put him in this chair and then maybe I'll knock him out and then Philip will come over and help me out with blah, blah, blah. And you're like, that is amazing. Yeah. And the idea of luring David into a false sense of security and sort of playing on their friendship and David's trust, I also think maybe this is a moment where Rupert realises how bad his own thoughts have been. Yeah. His own rhetoric. Yeah, because he just takes all of it back, everything that he said He takes all of it back. And I think him going through it and going through the motions and him realising that in his own head he can concoct this sort of murder makes him Mm realise and sort of be like, oh, maybe I've been wrong this whole time. Yeah. And And then he regurgitates what David's father other said to him earlier in the evening, mm. and you're like, "Finally, you learned." Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he fires several shots out of the window to attract attention, and as the police arrive, Rupert sits on the chair next to the chest. Philip begins to play piano, and Brandon continues to drink, and that's rope. That's I feel right. like I feel like that's. Um... It, it feels kind of like the ending of Fight Club 2, where you're just like, there is no hope, like, for these people. Um, they've dug themselves into a grave, and, you know, it, it it's rarely done in films, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of ending. Yeah. So it was yeah. where, where you're like, oh, you learned a lesson on how terrible you are. You two are going to jail, presumably, because you just murdered somebody. And then all this other hoopla happening. So it was very well done. And I mean, that's, this is also why I picked this one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to, to pick apart with it. And there's so many layers and I love it. Yeah. I I think it really is one of the greatest films ever made. It's just, 
it really is just a work of genius and something that only someone like Hitchcock can do. And, you know, there have been imitations over the years, some good, some bad, but I don't think any film like this has been able to capture it the same way this does. No. I love a single setting film, but it takes a real skill to be able to pull it off. Um, And this does perfectly. I would also like to praise Hitchcock for making an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. It's exactly the the right length. It doesn't feel like anything's bulked Mm -hmm. up to hit that hour and a half mark Um, again. And it takes a real skill to be able to do that and not to feel like you have to add bulk. Yeah. It's it's a big pet peeve of mine. You have to add to it to reach a certain running time. And a lot of Hitchcock's films were two hours. Yeah. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, I, you know, he could have made this as a two hour film, but it would have had so much filler. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I feel that. Isn't Hitchcock's philosophy like he tries to challenge himself every film? Mm. Like he tries to do something different. So maybe the restraint in this one was his challenge to achieve. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure it would have helped with the technical aspects as well, keeping it shorter um, so they can have those long cuts without Mm -hmm. it being too much of an issue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we get to the awards? Yes. 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 So biggest queen. I mean, multiple answers for this. Yes. I went with Mystic Meg herself, Mrs. Atwater, the horoscope queen. Yeah. I very nearly went with her. Oh. But instead I went with Janet because, I mean, the style, her intolerance for Brandon's behavior, just everything about her. She's an absolute queen. I went with Mrs. Atwater as well. She is the butt of every joke. Yeah. <laughs> like, she is the comic relief of this movie. She yes, is. she is. But, and she, I think she knows it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, she definitely plays up to it. I, I do love her. She was a very close second for me. Every gay guy needs a Mrs. Atwater yeah. in their life and a Janet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, biggest gasp. We're going to say Mrs. Wilson as well. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I was going to say you can avoid Mrs. Wilson. Uh, <laughs> and we don't need someone to clean up after us. <laughs> uh, biggest gasp, I have the murder happening as soon as the open opening credits end. Absolutely, completely agree. See, I went further into the movie. I wrote uh, the, the scene where Rupert, or the moment where Rupert is interrogating Philip, because you have Philip practicing the piano it if you listen closely to the music it changes yeah goes, goes from joyous to menacing to like him just slapping keys and everything and then the button of this of this moment being he sees the rope and basically has a heart attack yeah like that that whole segment was just so intense and then to see the rope at the end i think i think i gasped literally yeah yeah no understandable uh, best dialogue again. So many answers for this one, but I had to go with Mrs. Wilson. When I came back, he and Mr. Philip were going at it, hammer and tongs. <laughs> I went with uh, how queer. I never heard of anyone who doesn't eat chicken. <laughs> I didn't have a specific answer for this one because, like, Brandon has a lot of one-liners where he <laughs> yeah. sasses people. So I just wrote down Brandon's snippy dialogue. Yeah. Because like, 
he he fires back at people left and right. You're just like, ooh, girl, where's my fan? <laughs> <laughs> the shade of it all. <laughs> and finally, that's camp. I gave it to Philip playing piano for Mrs. Atwater while she checks her makeup. <laughs> I just put the continuous innuendos yeah. is high camp. Brandon. Yeah. Brandon. <laughs> yes. Need I say more? <laughs> And for ratings, I give it 10 wannabe fortune tellers out of 10. I gave it 10 chicken chokers out of 10. I didn't actually write down a funny thing to go with it. So I'm just going to, uh, I, I'm going to make it up. I'm going to say 10 broken glasses out of 10. Okay. <laughs> uh, masterpiece, trash piece, trash or basic. I'm sure we can all agree. It is a masterpiece. Trash to piece. Oh, masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's a fucking masterpiece. Like, obviously, we we love this movie. We talked about it. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if beware you... if it wasn't at the end. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I hate yeah. It. <laughs> it's available on DVD, Blu-ray, and video on demand. And if you enjoy this, I recommend checking out a film we just watched yesterday. Actually, oh, Medusa Deluxe, nice. uh, which is a new uh, queer murder mystery film uh, with the one take style and it's yeah, fantastic absolutely. Oh, I've never heard of this one yeah, yeah. It's, it's new out here in the UK I'm not sure if it's got an American release it's date a yet. British film Medusa Deluxe so it's based around a murder that's happened at a hairdressing competition uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here for it <laughs> Uh, if you enjoyed Rope, I recommend Strangers on a Train, another masterpiece from Hitchcock that many have read as having homosexual undertones. Um, I went more basic. I went with The Purge. Nice. Yeah. Because, because yeah, as we absolutely. said, there is that dialogue in there. I may also recommend The Most Dangerous Game. Yes. Or The Hunt, which is the same. It's it's the modern remake of it. Um because of uh, of Mr. Cadell's uh, monologue about who yeah. should be murdered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there was some, wasn't there a remake in the 70s with Olivia Hussey? Uh, Turkey Shoot, I yes. think, believe it was called. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I feel like it's a film that's been remade a lot of times. I mean, I couldn't really think of like a, a queer equivalent for this, like, an actual, like, super gay oh, book yeah. of this movie. That, so that's why I went a little bit more of, like, the horror movie route. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. My, my knowledge isn't as vast as your, your yours. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a fan of Rope, then talk to us on social media. We're Horror Cult Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horror Cult Trash on Twitter. I'm Dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruz92 on Twitter. And I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram and Letterboxd. And this is our final chance to plug our festival. So, Gasp Horror Festival is taking place at Coolplex in Manchester this weekend. If you're listening on the day of release, it's the 17th and 18th of June. And you can get all the details you need and tickets. Uh, check out our social media, Gasp Horror Fest. Yes. Yes, it's going to be a great weekend and everyone's invited. Yeah. So give us a rate, review, subscribe on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode, like a follow on everything else. John, where can we find you? 
So Life's But A Song, you can listen to it anywhere you're listening to this. Um, all the socials are at But A Song Pod. I also have another podcast that uh, called Movie Deja Vu, where my co-host and I compare similar movies by creating a verbal Venn diagram, um, or what we think are similar movies. Sometimes it fails. I We did Boyhood versus Lady Bird, and it failed miserably. Uh, it blew up in my face, but we still did it. Uh, and that one, uh, Instagram at uh, Movie Deja Vu Pod. Perfect. Nice. And thank you for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure to finally have you on our show. I'm so excited, and I'm really excited for this film festival that I won't be able to attend. So, yeah. kudos to you guys. <laughs> You'll be there in spirit. I will be there in spirit. And I look forward to your Instagram posts on it, you know. Uh, yes. I'm assuming you guys are going to post on your Instagram. There, will be, there will be plenty. There yes. will be plenty. Uh, we'll be back next week on Tuesday, as for always. More pride. For more pride. And this time... We've got a bit of sleaze. We've got an erotic thriller. Ooh. We'll be discussing wild things yes. with special guest Curtis's Corner. Nice. To discuss another erotic thriller with us. Yeah. <laughs> Could you ever get enough of those? Like, those no, 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 no. Never too many. Never too we many. dedicate a whole evening every Friday night as erotic thriller night in this household. <laughs> but I yes. Love- Hammer and tongue. Hammer and tongue. Hammer and tongue. There'll be plenty of hammer and tongs in that episode. Oh. <laughs> we'll be back same time, same place next week. Bye. Bye.